What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. I'm Josh Hammer, and this is America on Trial, your one-stop shop for all of your hard-hitting, easily digestible legal news out there. It is an absolutely bonkers news cycle, so let's dive right in. Let's go around the horn. We begin yesterday on Capitol Hill, where Hunter Biden was up there for at least the second time in recent memory for a long day of closed-door testimony before the House Judiciary and House Oversight Committees. His day started around 10 a.m. or so, where he was deposed. This follows his uncle and the brother of the President of the United States, James Biden, who spoke to the exact same panels, the Judiciary and Oversight Committees, Last week, James Biden had spoken there for more than eight hours. Similar testimonies. This is is closed-door hearing. We don't have the public transcripts, at least yet. But there have been any number of leaks. And based on what we can tell, James Biden and Hunter Biden said more or less the same thing to Congressman Comer of Kentucky, Congressman Jordan of Ohio, and the rest of them on those two House committees, where they basically said that the so-called big guy, Joe Biden, had nothing whatsoever to do with any of their business dealings, Yada, yada, yada. You know how that story goes by now. Again, we are waiting to see the the full transcript there. Here is the relevant quote based on the leak of Hunter Biden's opening statement. He told the committee, quote, I am here today to provide the committees with the one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. I did not involve my father in my business, not while I was a practicing lawyer, not in my investments or transactions, domestic or international not as a board member and not as an artist, never. So that was the gist of Hunter Biden's appearance yesterday on Capitol Hill. Recall that, zooming out a little bit here, in this election year, the real reason why Jim Comer, Jim Jordan, and the rest of House Republicans are continuing to depose, subpoena, and depose Hunter Biden and and James Biden here. They're trying to get their skeptics in their own House Republican caucus over the fence when it comes to impeachment articles against Joe Biden there. Not clear right now whether the votes are there. Not clear, I would say, whether yesterday's hearing with Hunter Biden actually helped persuade anyone there. Recall especially that this is coming on the heels of the former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov, a Russia-connected former FBI confidential informant who is, is himself now being indicted on alleged fabrication of the Burisma bribery scheme entailing Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. So uh, a, a less charitable way of describing it would say that, that the story is falling apart. I, I would not go that far because, again, there still is a lot, a lot of smoke right now 
But as of yet, there is not necessarily that single smoking gun piece of evidence right now. I'm not entirely sure that they're going to be able to muster the votes up for an impeachment effort if I'm just going ahead and looking at the caucus and trying to count votes. Moving on here, yesterday, Illinois. Yesterday, Illinois became the third state to have some sort of public official go ahead and kick Donald Trump off of the ballot. That follows after Colorado and Maine had done the same. In Colorado, it was the state Supreme Court. In Maine, it was the unelected, appointed Secretary of State. And in Illinois, it was Judge Tracy Porter of Cook County, Illinois. Cook County, Illinois is where the city of Chicago is located. I know it all too well, having lived there three years myself when I went to law school back there. So Judge Tracy Porter ordered the state election board in Springfield, Illinois, to remove former President Trump from Illinois' March 19th primary ballot. But she put her order on hold until at least Friday, until at least tomorrow. Well, what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, we are anticipating that tomorrow is probably going to be the day where we are finally going to get that much-anticipated and much-discussed ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court as it pertains to the aforementioned appeal from the state of Colorado in the Trump versus Anderson case, Colorado, which became the first state to act of its own initiative to deprive Donald Trump of his rightful place on the 2024 ballot. The the reason why we fully anticipate this ruling is going to come tomorrow is because Colorado's primary is on Tuesday. Colorado is one of the Super Tuesday states that is going up this Tuesday there. It really, really makes a lot of sense for the court to go out there and to get this opinion done before Super Tuesday in general, and especially, especially before Colorado itself votes, considering that Colorado is the actual party involved in this case there. So at least, you know, if there if there was a modicum of solace to be had from yet another farcical Star Chamber-esque ruling there in a very Star Chamber-esque state, the state of Illinois, if there was any modicum of solace here is that the judge put it on hold until tomorrow and this whole thing is likely to be mooted tomorrow when the supreme court will decide by an either eight to one or nine to zero unanimous margin that trump belongs on the ballot moving on just a reminder that we are anticipating more potentially explosive hearings tomorrow down in fulton county georgia in the courtroom of judge scott mcafee That would follow up on the hearings earlier this week involving Terrence Bradley, the former lawyer for Nathan Wade, when it comes to his divorce filings. Terrence Bradley was expected to be a key witness for Trump and his co-defendants there when it comes to his putative knowledge of the timeline of Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade having their illicit shacking up love affair. His testimony proved less than fully helpful, but we will see what is in store for us tomorrow down in Fulton County, Georgia, in the courtroom there. I certainly know that I am looking forward to that. We will be all over it, of course, here on America on Trial. Speaking of the Georgia case, yesterday, Mark Meadows, one of Donald Trump's higher-profile co-defendants in the Georgia prosecution, was denied a second time in his continuing request to be removed, to have his prosecution there in Georgia removed from state court, from the state courtroom of Judge Scott McAfee and the ambit of the not-so-very-bright district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff to Donald Trump, has now tried numerous times to get this thing removed to federal court on the very simple grounds that he was a federal officer at the times of the actions that ultimately led to this indictment. 
there was a panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, which is a right-of-center federal court of appeals. This three-judge panel, which includes the certainly well-right-of-center chief judge, Bill Pryor, this three-judge panel back in December denied as a matter of substantive law Mark Meadows' attempt to have this thing removed, and then yesterday they went ahead and denied rehearing it on bonk. So that basically forecloses Mark Meadows' options at the 11th Circuit when it comes to possibly removing his prosecution to federal court from state court. Pretty much the only option here that remains is to go ahead straight up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here is the quote from Mark Meadows' lawyer, a man by the name of George Terwilliger. Here's the quote. We have a lot of options at this point, and we will be carefully considering them all. Even good judges make bad decisions, and this is, I believe, one of those, one that jeopardizes the well-being of former federal officials of all types and stripes by denying them access to the federal courts when states attempt to sue or prosecute them for having met the responsibilities of their federal duties. So that's the basic argument. The basic argument here is that if you are acting as a federal official and you are going to be charged— then it, at a bare minimum, I mean, you probably shouldn't be charged in the first place if you're acting in your official duties. This is kind of what we're going to get to in just a few minutes when it comes to the big Donald Trump Supreme Court immunity question. But at least at a bare minimum, this thing has to be heard in federal court. So Mark Meadows, unfortunately, from my perspective, that was denied yet again there. And then our final stop here of our Around the Horn segment today takes us up to New York State, where a New York state judge by the name of Anil Singh in the New York State Supreme Court's appellate division, he rejected Donald Trump's attempt to delay enforcement of Justice Arthur Ngoron's judgment in the so-called fraud case, totaling $454 million roughly in damages and backdated interest payments. It's an astonishing ruling. It's an unprecedented ruling. We've impacted a great deal on, on this show. And unfortunately, Justice Anil Singh of the Appellate Division has rejected Trump's attempt to delay this judgment. What Trump basically did was he went before the, the appellate panel here in New York State and tried to say, will you let me post just $100 million? I mean, just $100 million. It's still $100 million. Recall that Trump also has his $83.3 million sham verdict in the defamation case of E. Jean Carroll, for which he is similarly seeking appeal. But going back to the Tish James fraud case here in New York State, yesterday you had Justice Anil Singh, who, in his very brief decision, he declined to delay, quote, the enforcement of monetary judgment, which is a little cryptic, not entirely clear exactly what he is getting at there. But what it seems to mean, what it seems to mean is that he is not going to let Donald Trump get away with simply paying $100 million. Rather, he is going to have to expedite the payment of a much larger portion, if not the entirety, of this $454 million figure, this astronomical figure there. Not entirely obvious how Trump's going to get that money. That's No one really has that kind of liquid cash simply sitting around there. We, we definitely could start to see the Trump organization start selling some major properties over the next month. That is absolutely something that could happen. It, it would be a fairly astonishing thing to see if they start selling some some major properties. But look, if you, if you have to pony up $454 million, unless you can get a massive IOU from some banks, which is possible, you're going to have to start selling some properties here. Now, 
One good thing that Justice Singh did do in this ruling yesterday, and this will be our, our, our final comment on this matter, is that he is allowing Trump's two sons, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr., to remain in leadership positions at the Trump Organization for the time being. So that would be countermanding, going against the shoddy reasoning and outcome that was reached by Justice Angoron at the lower court below. And he's also going to allow Trump and the Trump Organization to seek out loans with banks in New York State, which would also countermand the insane and absolutely appalling judgment from Justice Arthur and Goron below. So the upshot here is that they're going to be able to just go to New York State banks for some bonds and IOUs, but but it's, this is a big IOU. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast, politics by faith. Moving on to today's deep dive, which is unequivocally the big news of the day, breaking news yesterday afternoon. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to heal the, hear the question of Donald Trump's presidential immunity as it pertains to special counsel Jack Smith and the sprawling election-related case more generally in Washington, D.C. Now, as we've explained on this show, there were three possible things, broadly speaking, three buckets that the Supreme Court could have done. So procedurally speaking, what happened here a three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in a, in a unanimous per curiam, which means unsigned opinion, denied President Trump's claim of unqualified presidential immunity for all actions that took place while he was president of the United States, which would have the effect of allowing this prosecution to proceed in the trial courtroom of Judge Tanya Chukin, a very anti-Trump judge. There in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, Trump appealed for an emergency stay petition to the U.S. Supreme Court. That is the somewhat arcane, the somewhat complex procedural posture, as we lawyers like to say, of the case at hand here. The Supreme Court was faced with three possibilities. On the one hand, the most damaging to Trump and probably what Jack Smith would have most preferred, I say probably because ironically back in December he actually issued this utterly idiotic and totally self-defeating quote where he said the Supreme Court's going to have to resolve this immunity question. I have no idea why Jack Smith said that unless he is just a bumbling idiot. But regardless, what Jack Smith really wanted here, despite that idiotic statement from December, was what he really wanted was the Supreme Court to swiftly deny the Trump stay petition and to instruct the D.C. Circuit to, quote, issue the mandate, which in legalese means to formally send it back down to the trial court for the trial to commence. That is what the Supreme Court could have done. That is what Jack Smith and the Merrick Garland, the whole Democrat lawfare complex, that is clearly what they wanted. What Trump, what Trump and his lawyers most wanted is for the U.S. Supreme Court to grant the stay but declined to hear the case on the actual merits, on the actual constitutional substantive question of Article II presidential immunity. And what they really wanted was then to allow the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit 
to hear this thing on bonk before the full 11 judges expanding it from the three judges that heard the panel in the interlocutory appeal. Hearing it before the full on bonk D.C. circuit wouldn't go anywhere for Trump for the very simple reason that it is a seven to four Democrat nominated majority. And even one of the four Republican nominees, Judge Karen Henderson, was on that three judge per curiam panel. So the math simply is not there. But as a dilatory tactic, simply trying to run out the clock, so to speak, that was very much what the Trump legal team was hoping for. And of course, in kind of classic John Roberts fashion, what they did was they chose the middle ground, which was probably the highest likelihood all along. And they converted the request for an emergency stay petition into a petition for a writ of certiorari, which is a petition to actually hear the substantive questions. So long story short, they are going to hear oral argument in this bombshell blockbuster case of presidential immunity in late April, and they are expecting to issue a ruling in June. It'll probably be one of those end-of-term specials where the ruling comes down in, in the very last week of June or so. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court does. They have a flair for the dramatic. They like to save a lot of their higher-profile opinions for the very end of the term. We've seen that over and over again, whether it's the Dobbs abortion case, the affirmative action case last term. That, that's just what the Supreme Court does, and they probably will do the, the same thing here. Now, there's a lot of questions to unpack here. One is who actually argues the case for Trump when it gets to oral argument at the Supreme Court. Are you going to let Jonathan Mitchell argue it? Jonathan Mitchell, I've discussed him on this show. I've known him for a very long time in a personal capacity, an absolutely brilliant legal mind, one of the most outstanding conservative lawyers in the country as far as sheer intellectual analytical ability. And he also was a lawyer who, who argued on Trump's behalf in the ballot access case, the Trump versus Anderson case earlier this month, earlier in February at the U.S. Supreme Court. He did an exceptional job as per usual there. On the other hand, are you going to allow John Sauer, the former Missouri Solicitor General, to take the case, John Sauer, was the lawyer who was arguing on behalf of Trump in the D.C. Circuit when it comes to this case, the, the question of presidential immunity. So that's one question that the Trump legal team is, is going to have to sort out. As a legal nerd, I look forward to, to seeing who gets to argue this one in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Another major, major question, obviously, is are the votes there? Are the votes there? Look, I take a strong view in general of Article Two presidential powers, I always have. Uh, th there are various cases that you might use as, as a proxy to kind of discern just how sympathetic you are at kind of a guttural, visceral level when it comes to presidential powers. One of them is a 2004 habeas case in involving Guantanamo Bay detainees called Hamdi. Uh, I'm not going to get into the legal weeds because it's really neither here nor there, but I remember reading this case for the first time and being immediately sympathetic sympathetic to Clarence Thomas's dissent, which was by far the most pro-Article II, pro-presidential powers. And, you know, as someone born Abraham Lincoln's birthday, I mean, what does Lincoln stand for if not presidential powers? That, that really has kind of always been where my sympathies lie. So I, I am probably one of the most sympathetic out there to Donald Trump's claim of full legal immunity, you really do not want to go down this rabbit hole, folks, of then being able to prosecute presidents after they leave town, after they pass the baton to their successor for actions that they took as president. Again, I've used this, this example on the show, but I ask yet again, do Democrats really want to open the floodgates 
For the next time a Democratic president is sitting there in the Situation Room going to assassinate, let's call it a U.S. citizen abroad. Let's say his name is Anwar al-Awlaki. Let's say you're going to take him out from by a Hellfire missile in Yemen in the Arabian Peninsula. Oh, by the way, that's exactly what Barack Obama did back in 2011. Do you really want to live in a world where the day that Obama leaves town and Trump takes office, that Republican conservative lawyers could then sue Obama or Alawaki's family could sue him? I mean, I mean, it's a dangerous road to go down, and, and I do find myself very sympathetic to that on the actual constitutional merits, especially given the fact that we have a longstanding and undoubtedly correct Department of Justice and Office of Legal Counsel policy going back at least as far as the Nixon administration that says that a sitting president cannot be indicted for actions taken in office. So if you're going to have that logic, I, I'm not entirely sure why we wouldn't simply extend that to former presidents as well, again, for actions they took while president. So it's a constitutional argument that appeals to folks like me. The question is, does it appeal to folks currently sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court? And starting to go ahead and count the votes, I'm honestly just not sure it's there. I think that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, the two most conservative justices on the court, folks who are both very pro-Article II powers in, in general, at least in certain, certain circumstances, I think that they probably will go ahead and go with full immunity, if, if I had to guess. I'm, these are just total guesses here, but that'll be my guess. From there, I, I honestly don't know. The best guess after that is probably Brett Kavanaugh, who of all of the Trump nominees, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch, Kavanaugh is the most pro-Article II, the most pro-presidential powers of them. I could see a world in which Kavanaugh joins Thomas and Alito in going for full Article II presidential immunity for all actions taken there. I, I could potentially even see a world where maybe a Gorsuch, but probably not, maybe a John Roberts, believe it or not, because he actually can be pro-Article II powers at times too. I think back to the Trump versus Hawaii immigration enforcement decision during the Trump administration. But recall also that John Roberts just absolutely loathes Donald Trump with a fiery passion, and you cannot discount the likelihood, the indeed, the perhaps the inevitability that personal animus like that actually plays a role in stuff like this. I, I hate to say it, but that's just how the system works. It, it, it really is. So I'm just not sure the votes are going to be there for full immunity. Ironically, Trump really could be let down here by the very faint-heartedness of his own nominees, folks like Gorsuch and Barrett, who are simply not the stalwarts that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito are, as many of us have been sounding the alarm on and pointing out for many years now. This could finally potentially be the moment when many people start to have a similar realization. One final thing that I will point out, and we'll close today's show on that note, one thing that the Supreme Court could do, they could do, they could recognize that presidential immunity exists in the abstract. But recall that the Supreme Court is a pure body of law. They're not there to engage in fact-finding. They are not in the business of teasing out facts and discovery and pretrial motions and all of that and trying to match the facts of the law. They're a straight law body as the highest appellate court in the land. So what they could do, and I saw Sarah Isger issue an uncharacteristically savvy tweet yesterday where she pointed this out. What they could do is they could recognize that immunity exists and then remanded to the lower courts for fact-finding as to the scope. That would be a massive win for the Trump legal team insofar as it would be another dilatory tactic to kind of run out the clock there 
And you have to think that a lot of the justices actually are gettable when it comes to this possible outcome, much more certainly than just Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. Either way, this trial is not getting started for Jack Smith anytime soon. This ruling on the immunity question is not coming down until the end of June. And even if they issue a clean denial of immunity and don't go the nuanced route that I just said, even if they do that, you're still going to get then back in the trial court, lots of pretrial motions and discovery requests there. You're probably not looking at a trial start date, even in the best case scenario now for Jack Smith, even the very best case scenario, you're probably not looking at a trial start date until at least September at the earliest. And at that point, it is going to be a race to the finish line, folks. What a world to live in. Uncharted waters we are living in right now, to put it absolutely mildly.